You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Uh, today's the last Sunday of Lent. If you've been uh, observing Lent, maybe you gave something up for Lent, you've been reading a devotional, you've probably discovered the thing that I feel every year, which is like, man, Lent is really long. And I, about week four, I'm like, are we done yet? And it's the, there's always that last two weeks are tough. But today's the last Sunday of Lent. We have one week left. Uh, today is also called Palm Sunday. That's just the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And, you know, so if a king rode into a city on a war horse, of course, that means that he's, he's coming for war. He's coming to conquer the city. But a king could also ride into a city on a donkey. And if he did that, it meant he was coming in peace. Now, the great thing about Jesus is he manages to do both things all at once. He comes in peace, right? He hands himself over to his enemies, but in doing so, he defeats them. This is what Colossians 1 says, that Jesus made peace through the blood of his cross. That's the the wonder and the glory of Palm Sunday. It's also the theme of Hebrews 9 and 10, which we're looking at today. I know that we only read Hebrews 10. I did that out of mercy for you. I didn't want to read the whole thing. But also, uh, the way that Hebrews works is it doesn't just necessarily build in linear fashion like uh, we're used to things doing. Sometimes he'll just pick like a main idea and then he'll just circle around it and kind of say the same thing over and over in different ways. But the whole time he's doing that, the main thing is still the main thing. And Hebrews 9 and 10 works like that. He just keeps circling around saying very similar things. But at the center of all that is the sacrificial death. Of Jesus, which sounds weird to some of you. Are we talking about sacrificing to gods for sin? Is that what's going on? That sounds really primitive. Uh, some people in our day have actually posited, like in academics, maybe that's just a metaphor for forgiveness. Maybe it's a symbol of God's love and grace toward us. Uh, if you have questions like that, I think Hebrews 9 and 10 will actually be really helpful. Uh, many of you uh, don't have questions like that. This is pretty settled in your mind. Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, your challenge is different. Your challenge is not in believing that these things are true. It's probably in believing that they're true for you. Like you need forgiveness. And you really can be forgiven. And who doesn't want that? Like who in here does not want to leave feeling forgiven? Can you imagine anything else happening today that would be better than having that sort of weight of a guilty conscience being lifted from you. I can't either. That's the good news of Hebrews 9 and 10. Now, here's, here's let, me, let me sort of drive the need a little deeper in you a little bit. I get the opportunity to meet with a lot of you, and so that allows me to see certain threads and themes running throughout our community. You think it's just you, but it's really everyone, like, like this, for example. Uh, one of the things that I commonly hear is people just struggling to feel um, joy in daily life, just in the everyday stuff. People commonly talk about how hard it is to really open up and really connect and be honest with people in community. People talk about how they feel restrained in worship. No surprise there, right? Um, But it's not that you are, like you don't want to express yourself, it's that you feel restrained. Like when Kelsey read Philippians 2, did you not want to scream something out loud? I did, and I didn't. Why? Restrained in worship. I feel that, right? Just like you. Some people, a lot of people, talk about anxiety related to what life might bring them. 
Okay, I could go on. But there's probably a lot of factors that relate to those feelings that we all have. But here's what's insightful to me. If you look through the scriptures, all of those feelings can be connected to a lack of embracing the forgiveness we have in Christ. Listen to what Sam Storms, a pastor in Oklahoma, says. The single overriding and most debilitating factor that threatens to undermine everything in our Christian lives and in our relationship with God is the failure to understand, embrace, and enjoy the full and final forgiveness of sins. You hear what he's saying? That, like, one of the major things that's clogging up your life, one of the major things that's causing the anxiety and the restraint and, and, the, and the hesitancy to be open is that you haven't fully and finally embraced forgiveness that you have in Christ. I want you to experience the power of forgiveness today. I want you to believe it, and I want you to feel it. And if you want that, then you need to give your attention to what Hebrews is saying about the sacrificial death of Jesus. In contrast to all the sacrifices in the Old Covenant, which he's been talking about over and over, in contrast to all of that, Jesus is a better sacrifice. And he's a better sacrifice for two reasons. One, because his sacrifice is real, and because it really works. Let's talk about those two things. Um, Open up your Bibles to Hebrews 9 and 10 if you haven't. Also, in your liturgy, you have a little insert handout like this. Find that, get it out. We're going we're gonna to use that here in a little bit. But I want you to have Hebrews 9 and 10 open if you can, because I'm going to jump around a little bit. We're going to take this spiral journey with the author. The first thing that he's saying is that Jesus' sacrifice is real. It's the real thing. It's the substance Uh, One of the points in Hebrews 9 and 10 is that the rituals and the sacrifices related to the Old Covenant were all symbols, symbols that were pointing to the ultimate reality of Jesus, ultimate realities of the New Covenant. Look at um, chapter 9, verse 24. Look what he says. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, the, the temple, the tabernacle where all the sacrifices were made. He says, these are copies of the true things. And then in 10, verse 1, he says, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. So all that stuff is just symbols pointing to the ultimate reality of Jesus. At the beginning of chapter 9, he he spends eight verses just sort of detailing all the items or some of the items in the tent. And he lists all kinds of things. But then in verse 9, he says that all of this is symbolic of that age. Symbolic of how things were done in the Old Covenant. So the, the intricate design and the aesthetic beauty of the tabernacle, that, that was pointing to something. It was pointing to the glory and the perfections of God. Uh, the ritual washings reminded them of the holiness of God. Everything and everybody had to be clean to come in there. The way the tent was designed, I mean, you know, you had this outer section... Then you had this intersection, and inside that, you had the most holy place behind a curtain. Like, the way that the whole thing was designed is not, it wasn't like an open floor plan, you know? You didn't come in there, and you didn't, it wasn't saying like, come on in, make yourself at home. Not at all. It was saying, keep your distance. Be careful. If you, don't come in here. You draw near to God, you will die. 
Right? So, so everything about the tent was symbolic. It was pointing to the ultimate reality of Jesus. And so when Jesus comes, you know what the Apostle John says? He, he became one of us, he took on flesh, and he dwelt among us. And we, we saw, we beheld his glory. And that word dwelt is the word for tabernacle. He's saying Jesus tabernacled among us. He is the ultimate reality. And Jesus didn't say, keep your distance. Don't come near. Jesus said, come to me. Follow me. We do not believe in a symbol of redemption. Christians do not believe in just merely the idea of sacrifice. We believe in an historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, and his life and his death and his resurrection. Our hope is in the real sacrifice of his real body and his real blood. One of the uh, contrasts you see throughout these chapters is the blood offered by the priests and Jesus' blood. And he says that the blood that the priests offered in the temple wasn't their own blood. But Jesus came in by his own blood. Another contrast is just the repeated nature of the Old Testament sacrifices and the single sacrifice of Jesus. So the priests offered sacrifices continually every day and then every year was the sacrifice of atonement. And why do they keep doing it? Well, he says it's because it's impossible for the blood of of goats and bulls to take away sins. In other words, it doesn't really work in the way that we need it to. That's why it was offered over and over. But the shed blood of Jesus is the real thing. It's a single sacrifice. There'd be no way to even reproduce that sacrifice. And there would be no need to. It's once for all. This is important because of what he begins to say in chapter 10, verse 5. I want you to look at it with me. The reason is real blood and his real body. He says we were cleansed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And that's important because in verse 5 he says, When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired to God, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. And I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. So this is a a quote from Psalm 40. And you're just like, why is he quoting Psalm 40 here and putting it in the mouth of Jesus? What's going on here? Well, one reason is to show that even in the Old Testament, there was this acknowledgement that, that God wasn't just after sacrifices, God desired a people who would serve and obey him, a people who would do his will. Israel said that they would do that, but they didn't. They were, they were wayward, they were unfaithful. And so Jesus comes, and we talked about this last week, Jesus comes as the faithful Israelite who totally and completely obeys and serves God. He does the will of God. And he doesn't do it symbolically. He does it bodily. Look what he says. A body you have prepared for me. And so in this body I have come to do your will. 
And it's hard to even read that without thinking of the Garden of Gethsemane, which is the, the night before Jesus died. He went to pray, and he, he had always known that this day was coming, but it was, you know, how it is. When it gets real, when it comes time, it starts to really press in and weigh down on you. And, and the reality of the cross, which he was always headed towards, started to really weigh down on him. And so he brings his friends out to pray, and as he's praying, he's sweating blood, it says. And which I've looked this up, it's not a symbol. Like, there's a condition that you can have such anxiety, such fear that you can sweat blood. Like, full humanity is Jesus. And this real blood and this real anxiety is evidence of his real obedience. Because in that moment, he says, God, not my will, but your will be done. And verse 10 says, and by that will, by the will of the Father, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Listen. The Christian faith is entirely centered on a Nazarene man who lived in the first century. Like a guy who grew up with siblings, a guy who was born through a woman, a guy whose dad was a carpenter. Our hope of salvation is on this man and his life and his death and his resurrection. If he's not real and if these things didn't really happen to him, then Paul says our faith is is totally useless. It's empty. But we know that our faith is not empty because of the empty tomb, which we'll talk about next week. But, but as you think about these symbols that point to the real Jesus, and you begin to dive into them, it's really breathtaking. Uh, the more that I've studied Hebrews, because Hebrews is so good at this, of, of showing us all these things point to some other reality, uh, I've been amazed by it. It's, it's not a story that anybody could make up. It's certainly not a story that first century Jewish men would want to make up. Even if you could make it up, which you can't, but even if you could, there's no way that any person in all of human history could step into that story and fulfill everything that it says, unless he knew all along everything that was in it. Right? And that's what's happened. That's what Jesus has done. The author of the story has stepped into the story. The one who made the symbols has become their true form. The God who requires a sacrifice became the sacrifice. Jesus' death is real and it has to mean something. It can't just merely be an example of redemption. It's the difference between like, like if you and I, or let's just say Debbie and I, were at a train track and was the train coming and I said, baby, I want to prove my love to you and so I threw myself out in front of the train and died for her. Well, that, that's stupid. That doesn't, doesn't prove anything. I just died. Right? If she's on the train track and the train's coming and I push her out of the way and I die in the process, that's real sacrifice. That really means something. And that's what's going on here. The real sacrifice of Jesus shows us the magnitude of our problem that we really do deserve to die because of our sin. And it shows us the magnitude of his love, that he died for our sin, 
so that we could live. So Jesus is a better sacrifice because he's real. And because his sacrifice really works. Uh, The old covenant system and all of the symbols and rituals and sacrifices in them, they, they um, they were powerful symbols, but they didn't actually have power in and of themselves because they didn't work. And so the question is, well, what do you mean, work for what? Well, one of the main concerns in these chapters is the problem of our conscience. You'll see that word repeated a few times. He talks about purifying or cleansing our conscience. We talk about things being on our conscience or weighing heavy on our conscience, things that maybe are troubling us. So at the end of chapter 10 in verse 22, he, he talks about our need to be cleansed of an evil conscience. And that word evil just means troubled. He said, we have a troubled conscience. That's a problem. We also talk about being self-conscious. You know, like if we uh, are somewhere and we just feel like we don't fit in. When I was in ninth grade, I had these white bugle boy pants, which were really cool at the time. And uh, I washed them with something red and they, turned, they kind of turned faint pink. But it was a solid stain. Like, it looked like they came that way, so I decided to own it. And just wore my pink pants all the time, owning it. Not being self-conscious at all. But for real, inside, really feeling self-conscious because I was wearing pink pants all the time. That's that's a little bit what he's saying. Chapter 9 tells us we can be ritually cleansed. We can have this false sense of confidence because of all kinds of rituals or things that we've done. But the stain of sin remains. The stained conscience is there and you can't shake it. The idea in Hebrews 9 and 10 is is kind of a combination of these things. Uh, We feel the weight of sin on our conscience. And because of that, it makes us feel unfit before God and and before community as well. You know that feeling in community that if people knew the real you, there's no way they would want to be your friend, they would totally reject you? Well, we kind of have that feeling with God. I mean, we know he knows the real us, and it's precisely because of that. We just assume he rejects us, or at least wishes that he could. And so we, uh, we keep our distance. The problem of of the conscience is just the core problem of humanity, and we try to deal with it in all kinds of ways. Religion, morality, random acts of kindness. It doesn't matter what we do. We can't fully take care of the deep-down problem. This is a big concern in Hebrews. Look at the beginning of Hebrews 10. He says... It, the law, about halfway through verse 1, can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, it can never make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? Here's what he's saying. If the old sacrifices worked, then we wouldn't keep doing them because it would have worked, I would have had my conscience cleansed, and I wouldn't feel guilty anymore. I wouldn't need to keep coming back. But as it is, the reason people come come back is because they didn't feel clean. Their their conscience condemned them, and so they would come back and have the priests offer sacrifices. But Hebrews says the sacrifices, they they couldn't take away sins. they, They couldn't do the thing that we need. 
The whole thing was a constant reminder of our dirty conscience, of our sinfulness. So we need more than a ritual washing. We need to be cleansed deep down. This is the good news of Hebrews 10. Jesus cleanses us deep down by his blood. That's a weird phrase. What? I don't have any blood on me. What do you mean his blood cleanses us? That's a weird phrase. If you just read over that and you don't think to yourself, that's a weird phrase. You're not reading the Bible honestly. That's a weird phrase. What does that mean? We'll look at that in more depth on Good Friday, but for now, if you look at uh, chapter 9, verse 18 through 20, here's, here's kind of his logic. He says, the first covenant was inaugurated with blood, right? So Moses took the blood and like, sprinkled it everywhere. He put it on the book. He put it on the people. He put it all over the tabernacle. There was blood everywhere. And, and that blood cleansed the place and it cleansed the people. It made them fit for worship. And so Hebrews is just taking that same injury, imagery. He's saying the, the new covenant in the same way is inaugurated with blood, the blood of Jesus. This is what Jesus was saying to his disciples the night before he died. He he said, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And he held up the cup and he said, this cup is the, the blood of the covenant. Well, it wasn't the literal cup. It was, it was the blood that he was going to shed on the cross. That inaugurates the new covenant. And so Hebrews is using all of that imagery to say what he says in t- verse 22 of chapter 10, that our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience we really can draw near to God. One of the lingering questions you have is like, okay, but how how can God really see me as clean even though I keep sinning? If you haven't asked that question, then you're not being honest with yourself. Look at verse 14 in chapter 10. He says, For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's an odd phrase, but he's saying, by this offering, you have been perfected past tense, even though you are still being sanctified. And so God, through the sacrifice of Jesus, has justified you, has made you right with himself. You have peace with God. That is a once-for-all thing. And, and <laughs> he is right now sanctifying, making you subjectively more and more holy. How does that work? Well, just a simple way that it works. This week, one of the things I've noticed in my heart is I've had uh, a much higher desire, like a a very conscious desire for holiness. Like a a deeper hatred of sin and a desire to avoid it. Now, why is that? Well, I think it's because I've been thinking about forgiveness all week. See, people think that if we say you really are forgiven, no matter what, that you'll just go on sinning. And it's actually not like that. God's love so floods and overwhelms your heart that it produces a higher motivation for holiness. If you struggle with a desire for holiness and to obey God, it might just be because you haven't fully embraced the full and final forgiveness that is yours in Christ. And so you still want to kind of like earn it. I mean, you can't do it. God sees us as clean. That's what people mean by that when they say God sees us as clean. 
they mean he has, by this single sacrifice, perfected you and is sanctifying you. You can draw near. This was the promise in Jeremiah 31 of the new covenant. We looked at it last week. He brings it up again in this chapter, uh, verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Just notice the difference. The old covenant was all about externals. And God, through Jesus, is doing something inside of us. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Before, God looked at their sins and he forgot about them. And now, he looks at us and he forgets about our sins. Why? Because we've been sprinkled clean with the blood of the new covenant through the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus was trying to set all this up for his boys uh, in the Last Supper. Talked about the blood of the covenant. Then he starts washing their feet. He's trying to say something here. My blood's going to wash you. Peter, not getting it, was like, whoa, whoa, hold up. No, you don't wash my feet. Jesus is like, all right, well, look, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Peter's like, oh, okay, well, then, like, let's do the full body wash. Let's get the whole thing going. Jesus is like, no, 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 you're already clean. He's like, this is symbolic, man, pay attention. He's like, you're already clean, man. If you're trying to clean yourself up, then you don't understand the sacrifice of Jesus. And if you feel unworthy of his forgiveness, it's because you're thinking about yourself. Put your attention on him. Remember the real sacrifice of his body and his blood and just just breathe in this gospel truth. You are clean because Jesus has made you clean. Over and over in this book, the the preacher's plea is to draw near to God. But if you don't embrace God's forgiveness, then you you won't feel fit to draw near to him. A few weeks ago, I was was driving down the highway and I was listening to a sermon by Ray Ortland, and they're doing a series called Coming Alive to God. Different words, same thing. Draw near to God. And uh, as I was listening to it, I just, I felt this wave of affection for God come over me. I couldn't help it. I I had a desire to draw near, like it was really heavy. It It was bringing tears to my eyes. Then another wave of emotion hit me. I thought about the possibility that for all these weeks we would just be talking about drawing near to God and just the possibility that some of you actually wouldn't do that. And for whatever reason, you wouldn't actually experience the nearness of God in your life. And it, um, man, that thought just killed me. I I felt this literal pain in my chest. I thought I was going to have to pull over to the side of the road because wouldn't that be so tragic? that we wouldn't draw near to God when he's made it so easy to do so. And I wondered, why? Why would anyone hesitate to draw near to God? Why Why would anyone prioritize anything else over that? Why would people pretend to feel like everything's fine when inside they feel so distant 
from God and from people. Why, why would anybody do that? And that those questions have been lingering in my mind. And then this week, in this text, the answers came to me. And it's because, well, they, they would hesitate. They would, they would keep their distance because they don't feel forgiven. Because they haven't embraced the full and final forgiveness that's theirs in Jesus. God's grace haven't, hasn't touched every part of their lives. And if that's the case, listen, the curtain has been torn. There's nothing to do but run by faith into the presence of God. I don't know how to make that happen. I don't know how to unclog your life. I do know that for me, just preaching these words to you week after week has really strengthened my conviction in how true they are. And so this is my desperate attempt. Here's what I thought we'd do. I'm going to give you a chance to preach a little bit to me and to each other and to yourself. Um, You see this responsive reading in your bulletin, which I had you pull out. This is a a reading through some of the main ideas of Hebrews 9 and 10. I'm I'm going to ask questions, and you're going to preach the answers. And and the reason I keep saying preach is the last thing we should do is just sit here and sort of read these, as ritual, Ritual would have it. We need to preach these. We need to take confidence in these things. And then this will, we'll wrap up doing this. So I'll read the questions and then you'll read the parts in bold. Why, why couldn't people go into the presence of God? What do they do about their sin? Why didn't the sacrifices work? then what can take our sins away? Where will we find a better sacrifice? Did he go into the temple? Did he go into the most holy place? Well, how did he do that? What do you mean by his own blood? But Jesus never sinned. He didn't deserve to die. But why did he have to die? Is this what God wanted? How do we know we're forgiven? For all what? But what about when I still sin? How does God accept us even though we still sin? Why would God do this for us? 
We have sinned so badly. I mean, we sin today. I know that we're still going to sin. I'm saying our sins are so many. So what do we do now? How do we do that? Do we need to clean up before we come to God? But we need so much help. Father, we draw near to you by faith in Jesus, our high priest, the spotless lamb, the sacrifice. By your spirit, would you convince us that his sacrifice was real and effectual, that we really are forgiven and washed clean today. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.